0: So are you excited for the weekend?
1: Oh, that's a good one. I'm sadly no Easter bunnies here for me. What about yourself?
0: Yeah, I mean, big decisions are to be made here to find the best chocolate to indulge in this weekend. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Happy Easter to everyone who celebrates it who listens to us.
1: Happy Easter. And on that note, it's Friday, the 2nd of April, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always is my co-host Sam. How is everything going Sam? Did you manage to get a little bit of sun earlier
0: this week? I did and it was glorious. Although I feel like it was quite a cruel teaser of summer because... I think we're soon heading back into the depths of single figures and and rain, but it was nice for the couple of days. And did you get a suntan? Not a suntan. No, no. I don't tan in the best of times, so not for me. (laughs) But by the way, fun fact for you in our politics brains, tomorrow marks exactly 300 years since Robert Walpole became the de facto first prime minister of Great Britain. So what a fitting time for us to be talking once again about the politics of the UK. Indeed. And over the next month,
1: we'll be taking a look at the politics of the UK in the build-up to what we call the Super Thursday of local and regional elections. And we'll be looking at the state of politics first in Northern Ireland, just over one year after power sharing was restored. And then we'll be looking at the elections in Scotland and Wales as they look to elect they are devolved governments and which are increasingly been much more powerful in terms of the powers and rules in which they've been able to legislate. And not forgetting as well, we will also be talking about the various local mayoral elections taking place in England. And to top it all up, there are two by-elections to think about. One for the resignation of a Labour MP in Hartlepool and one in Allarday and shots So a busy month
0: ahead, Sam, isn't it? It really is. Um, and we thought that ahead of the campaign getting fully underway, it's been quite a while since we talked about the UK parties. So we thought this week would be a nice opportunity to check in on the UK parties and discuss what might be at stake for them as this cycle begins. But before we dive into that, what have you been looking at in the news this week, Chern?
1: So there actually is a bit of a follow-up from last week when we discussed that Scott Morrison was looking to reshuffle his cabinet Well, that actually happened on Monday. And uh, the trigger was the fact that Christian Porter, who was a former attorney general, and Linda Reynolds, who was a former defense minister, were due to return. But Christian Porter had to be moved as attorney general, or which is the first law officer of the land, because he had just launched a defamation case against the ABC over a report when an unnamed cabinet minister, which turned out to be Christian Porter, was accused to, of a historical rape allegations. He has become the new industry, science, and technology minister, and Linda Reynolds will become the new minister for government services and disability, uh, disability affairs. So that has caused a slight reshuffle of the government portfolios. Melissa Price has joined the cabinet, so that brings the total number of women in government up to its to record of seven. Um, and it's particularly pertinent given the fact that Scott Morrison has been facing a lot of blowback for this perceived slow response to the various rape allegations that have been playing in Parliament House and the Liberal Party in particular. Um, other, long, other moves include Peter Dutton who will become the new Defence Minister. Karen Andrews was the big winner. She was promoted to become Home Affairs Minister and Stuart Robert will become the new Employment Skills and Small Business Minister. And again, another first a woman, Senator Michaela Cash from Western Australia, will become the first liberal woman, uh, woman representing the Liberal Party, and the second female overall to become Attorney General. So that is something a little bit historic. At a federal level, we saw a reshuffle of the Cabinet. Let me just quickly update you on a few developments that have been taking place over the last couple of weeks um, on the state politics level as well, because Australia has a federal system of government. Um, If you recall a couple of weeks ago, Mark McGowan, the Western Australian Premier, he won a thumping victory in the state elections, and he reshuffled his government a week after he won re-election, and he decided to appoint himself treasurer, which is the equivalent of Boris Johnson appointing himself Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, following the retirement of his previous treasurer, Ben Wyatt. Roger Cook, the deputy premier, has also taken on quite a big workload within the government, not only uh, retaining his portfolio of health on the premise that there's still a pandemic raging on, um, but he's also become minister of state development, jobs and trade, which is quite a big portfolio to manage as well, particularly since the Western Australian hospitals have recently become under strain as well. Um, even without the much prevalence of COVID-19 cases in the country. So he has a big workload ahead of him. Do you think, therefore, holding the health and what is essentially the portfolio that looks after the economic recovery of a state, being under the same person, is too much of a workload for somebody?
0: I think in the current climate, it's far too much because those, those are going to be the big beasts of COVID recovery Uh, and you're taking on both of them at the same time. But I think it's also interesting because in COVID, there's an inherent conflict between these two things, at least on a policy level, because you're often making concessions for the economy to benefit health or vice versa. So if the same person's controlling both, it might be a nice signal that, that Mark McGowan's government is wanting to combat the two at once, or at least try to come up with a policy that combats the two at once. So, on the, on the one hand, I think, yes, it's far too much for someone to control at the moment. But it could come up with some interesting policy solutions, actually. I think it might be a nice experiment.
1: And of course, the risk is that holding two large portfolios of this nature is that things might get dropped, given that you have to mm-hmm. tend to one of the aspect compared to the other, and therefore you might miss something. But I generally think that this is more of a short-term arrangement, I think Roger Cook is definitely seen as a successor to Mark McGowan as treasurer. But for the next year or so, McGowan just wants to focus it to be on health. And I wonder when the pandemic slowly dies down and the vaccination rollout becomes much more smoother across the rest of Australia, mm-hmm. that he might hand the treasury portfolio to Roger Cook. And that could cause a wider reshuffle of his responsibilities, such as Rita Saffioli, the current transport minister, is been tipped for bigger things. I also wanted to talk to you, Sam, right now, of whether it is good overall, in your opinion, for the Prime Minister or Premier to hold the money spot as well. The the, the double white guy holding on to what is possibly the most Mm -hmm. important portfolio,
0: which is Treasury. Do you think that's a good idea? So it's interesting we're talking about this today because, as I said at the top of the show, tomorrow marks 300 years since Robert Walpole became Prime Minister. Now, what's interesting about that is in the early days of the office of prime minister in the UK, they were the first lord of the treasury. They were simultaneously de facto leader of the government, as well as controlling the treasury, because they were seen as the the main things, because those who have the power of the purse control the government, basically. So I think it's interesting that those two roles being merged seems to go back to quite a traditional form of government where the person leading the government would also control the checkbook, so to say. But I do think at the moment that ends up being quite difficult because the Treasury in every situation, whether it's state politics or national politics, is vitally important and plays probably the largest role in the government, bar the person who actually leads it. And when you're controlling both of those things, do you have too much of a monopoly of power? I'm not sure. Um, But as I said, it was definitely traditionally the way things went. I think that's really interesting
1: and a very good point you raised there. It's something which I think has often been slightly forgotten, really. So I think that's a really Mm -hmm. good point. I think as well, one is to remember is that traditionally as well, having the Premier hold the Treasury portfolio, the Premier is a neutral arbitrator as well. You know, he can't, Mm -hmm. um, it is relatively okay if it's like the treasurer and the education minister holding the same, being the same person, he might have a very high temptation to spend in the education portfolio because it might politically benefit him. Mm -hmm. At least the premier himself is a neutral arbitrator in that sense that, you know, he has to balance competing priorities between the various ministers that want spending in housing compared to, you know, increased spending housing but also the health ministry might need more spending as well. And the Premier is still able to make that balance, which is crucial, isn't it, With limit, given limited resources?
0: Yeah, and I think more widely, it's a workload problem as well because the Treasury is going to be a vitally important role coming out of COVID-19. And if you're having to look after basically the balance of the government's budget whilst also trying to be the public leader of the state... It's difficult. That is a difficult situation to manage, and naturally, your attention is probably going to be on one over the other when it should be equally on both. I note
1: that a lot of small countries tend to combine their prime premier or whatever and their finance minister being the same guy. If you look at Australia, both in the, both capital territories, the Northern Territory, Australian Capital Territory, and the Northern Territory, uh, both Chief Minister Andrew Barr, the ACT, and Michael Gardner of the Northern Territory, both also are treasurers of their own state. Interesting. But the biggest states such as Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, they both have different people as Premier and Treasurer. So maybe it's a function that maybe being a smaller state, it could be easier to for the Premier and to be the Treasurer as well. But once the state becomes too big... It, the workload is just way too intense and you need a separate person to keep their eye on the treasury. That could be something as well. Mm-hmm. Just a quick quick little round out of the rest of Western Australia. Um, other notable first changes include the fact that first-timer Amber Jade Sanderson will become the Western Australia's first Minister for Climate Action, which could be possibly symbolic given the fact that this is Australia's resource-dependent state and you know and could signal further policy moves in that direction and quickly in New South Wales um, we, we talked about the fact last week or you certainly said that Michael Johnson uh, went to the crossbench uh, last week well I can tell you that this week he has succumbed to further media pressure and has resigned from the New South Wales Parliament following further rev- revelations that he was sexting a prostitute when parliament was actually sitting and he was in the chamber so an utterly horrific crime really and it this would necessitate a by-election on the 22nd of may which will actually decide uh, whether the Berejiklian government will remain will be officially in minority or will it regain its majority status the margin is uh, 2.6% the national party's margin so it's not a lot but then again, Gladys Berejiklian is personally very popular, and so. Um, but as we know, midterm by-elections, particularly in New South Wales, has been a large swing. So, which effect will win out—the COVID bounce or the traditional midterm by-election swing? Well, we've only got just under eight weeks or so to find out. Anyway, what about you, Sam? What else is what has caught your eye?
0: Mine is just a very quick one, um, because after several delays due to COVID-19, we finally got this week the results of the Newfoundland and Labrador state election over in Canada, which was actually Canada's first ever all-mail-in election. The election was triggered by the appointment of the new Premier, Andrew Fury, back in August 2020, because they need to have an election within one year of having a new Premier, so the usual four-year term was cut short. The Liberal Party, led by Fury, reclaimed the majority that they'd lost back in 2019 with a projected 22 seats in the 40-seat Assembly, and Andrew Fury is set to remain as Premier. But what's really fascinating about these results is that the leaders of both of the primary opposition parties, namely the Progressive Conservative Party and the New Democratic Party, were among the members of the House of Assembly to lose their seats. So Ches Crosby and Alison Coffin both... Had been elected as party leaders in the previous parliament and their stints clearly did not last very long because they are no longer members of the house of assembly what's interesting is that in pandemic canadian state elections you've seen the british columbia new democratic party win a majority you've seen the new brunswick conservative party win a majority So this was a welcome win for the Liberal Party to get their own reclaiming of a statewide majority in Canada. And Canada is due to hold its election by October 2023. But the minority status of Trudeau's government means that he might be tempted or even forced to hold that election earlier if there's a vote of no confidence. Do you think these election results in Newfoundland will have any impact on this decision? And more generally... Where do you think the the state is at with regards to Canada going to the polls before 2023? Just one quick couple of points. One,
1: the election results in Newfoundland will definitely give heart to Justin Trudeau when he makes the decision. But I still think that the biggest trigger of his decision will be how the federal Liberal Party that he leads is travelling in the opinion polls rather Mm -hmm. than the state Liberals, because sometimes... Um, less often in Canada, but very much so, is that voters are able to distinguish between state issues and federal issues as well. So I definitely think, but the overriding concern would be where the Liberals are in the polling um, and are they like able to get a majority? The latest opinion polls have suggested that his Liberal Party is on track to be around there to gain a majority. So although they could Potentially gain it is not one hundred percent certain, but what is certain is that the conservative vote has fallen a little bit, and so therefore the conservatives might fall a little bit. But whether it's flowing directly to Trudeau and would benefit him will very much depend on the first pass or post contest in each of the different constitu- and the different ridings is mm-hmm. what they call, um, which is the, their term the constituency. So yes, I do think that um, the Newfoundland results would give heart. But the bigger, more motivating factor will be how the federal liberals are polling and whether whether they are still in that slim majority territory, which is what they are currently occupying. He might want a little bit of a buffer because you know that governments with a one, two-seat majority could still prove perilous, particularly if there's a by-election or there's a scandal which causes one of his own MPs to having to go to the crossbench so he might want the Liberals Mm -hmm. to rise in the polls a bit further before he pulls the trigger. One thing to note Dov is that you've said that in Canada the terms are four years long but actually I found a bit of research which found that if the government ended the election in minority like in Trudeau's case the term only lasted two years on average so actually minority governments in Canada only last two years compared to the majority governments which tended to last full term to four. The last election was in 2019 so it means that if you go according to history we could see an election late in the year. I'm
0: personally quite convinced there could be one. What do you think sir? That's a really interesting um, statistic about the survival of governments. Yeah I, I also tend to agree with you that I think we may be seeing an election certainly within the next 12 months. I think COVID-19 certainly is helpful for Justin Trudeau timing wise because it can be a way to delay the inevitability of an election because you can effectively say, well, I'm managing a crisis. We can't possibly go to the polls at the moment. And then also, if he times the election well, it might come at the back end of the, the like exit from the pandemic and the opinion poll boost because you're reopening the economy. So I think I can see a situation in which it looks quite politically convenient for Justin Trudeau to call an election at the back end of this year. And it certainly seems to look like from Canadian news sources that that's certainly something that people in Canada seem to be expecting. Um, But as you said, COVID is wildly unpredictable, as is politics more generally. So we may have egg on our faces for making this prediction, but I certainly think that it's At the moment, it's pointing in that direction. Indeed, and we we'll certainly might have to do more reading up of Canadian politics
1: in the next six months of the year. But I think that's a, for now, that's a good moment to pause and we'll be right back after this.
0: So, welcome back. As we said at the top of the show, April marks the start of the 2021 local and regional election campaigns in the UK, And over the next month, we'll be taking a look at these elections in closer detail and more widely at the state of politics around the UK. COVID-19 may be dominating the headlines and preventing a conventional campaign, but these elections do still matter for party momentum and control of local politics, and particularly in the devolved governments, the control of regional parliaments. And today, we'll be looking at the main players... And the state of the big UK parties heading into these elections, and potentially what is at stake for them in this electoral cycle. And I thought we could dissect the state of UK politics by having a little conversation about the state of the big national parties, that is, parties that compete in more than one jurisdiction of the UK. We'll be talking about the regional parties like the Scottish National Party and Plaid Cymru when we do our preview for those elections. So today we'll be just talking about the big national parties. So I wanted to start, Churn, with a bit of a broad question, which is, if you had to sum up the state of the party system in the UK in this moment, how would you describe it? Who's up, who's down, who's nowhere? I think we, it depends on what
1: basis you're saying, who's up or who's down. Are we saying since the last election or when the last time we did the preview, around the start of the end of this year, last year and the start of this year. Definitely, if you look at since the election, Labour is up. Um, they were polling in the thirties, they got 31% in the general election in 2019, but they are currently on 36%. But nevertheless, over the last four months or so, they have regressed backwards. And, um, and the Conservatives, which were about one or 2% ahead in the polls, have opened up a bit of a gap more akin to six or seven points. So I think to answer this question, in terms of who is up, who is down, it depends on from which time perspective you want to use as a base. But who is nowhere to be seen? Well, the lit dems have slowly, but I've firmly remained in that category since the election and since December. Same for the Reform Party as well, I could argue. But the Greens is really interesting because I think the Greens could be seen as nowhere to be seen. It could also be seen on the way up. It's a bit hard to tell. What do you think, Sam? Is that a good analysis of where the big parties are potentially in place?
0: Yeah, I think that's a nice summary of what's going on. And I think as we dive into these parties throughout this episode, I think we'll be coming to these same sort of conclusions because it's certainly a very interesting time to look at UK parties because to, to one extent, COVID has frozen the party system and to another extent, it's livened it up. So I think we'll be talking about that um, throughout this episode. But I, I, why don't we get straight in with the Conservative Party, the governing Conservative Party? So the last time we talked about Boris Johnson's Conservative Party was back in early December. And since then, it would seem that Boris Johnson's Covid fortunes, at least to some extent, seem to be changing because of the success of the vaccine rollout. And the reshuffle that we previously presumed was imminent is now not expected to take place until at least after these this election cycle. So how would we describe Boris Johnson's performance as leader of the Conservative Party right now in the first half of this year?
1: Certainly compared to most of 2020, it's been a lot better. But the caveat is that we were starting from quite a low base if you compare it to last year. I think the government has gotten a better messaging tool and certainly less seems less chaotic is is how I would feel it and I think the very fact that it's seen as less chaotic and you know more calm and more adult-like has reassured a lot of Britons who maybe in the last year were disillusioned with the conservatives but not necessarily um, but were willing to give them a second chance because I think what helped Boris Johnson case is that British people knew that there were a lot of people on the plate. They had a trade deal to sort out that was still very much up in the air for most of 2020. They, and then COVID, which you know no one had seen or could forecast also hit the UK particularly hard. So I think Boris Johnson might have gotten the benefit of the doubt, certainly because people knew that the workload of, that he faced was particularly high. And we've definitely seen since the start of the year when the government had less on its plate, where there's still lingering issues related to the Brexit trade deal, that you know, it's performed a lot better in terms of communicating, in terms of it being seen less chaotic. So I think that's what has contributed to the better fortunes
0: of this government. And more broadly, what do you think the Conservative Party are hoping for in this electoral cycle? I noticed that in recent days they've been trying to temper down
1: expectations about how well they are potentially to perform because their argument is that if you look at certainly when these last elections were contested in 2017, um, those was at the height of Theresa May's popularity just before the election in June 2017. So the Conservatives have actually quite a lot of seats they could potentially lose and are defending quite a lot and so I think they're trying to be, trying to temper expectations I know we'll be talking more about the various party performances Mm -hmm. in the preview, but the expectation is that they're not going to do well in the London Mayoral elections. I think maintaining second place in Scotland could be seen as a very good thing, as seen as a primary unionist party in that aspect as well. And in Wales, I think the Conservatives are probably the most bullish about their performance there, particularly given the fact that they made a lot of inroads in Wales in the
0: 2019 election. It's interesting that a government that's seemingly riding, well, reasonably high in opinion polls, considering the party's now been in power for 11 years and is still polling consistently in first place. So when you're going into a cycle that traditionally opposition parties would perform better in anyway, it's very difficult to set expectations. And COVID-19 is adding an even bigger spanner into the works of well, are people going to use this as an exercise of voicing their opinion on the government's managing of the crisis? We, we just don't know. I think there's a lot of unpredictability about this, especially considering the lack of campaign.
1: I think what's particularly key as well now is that, you know, in the past, over the last year, there was a number which people could associate with the government's performance. In other words, the number of deaths in which was a particular one that people looked at every single day. it could be a baroque and that could change the feelings towards how people feel towards the government but i think over the last few months there's been a new indicator which people will look at and might change their opinion on the government and that is the number of people every day that are being vaccinated and because people are looking out and for so long have been looking out for that number it has changed their opinion on the government because of their supreme success on this issue And it's such a salient issue to so many people. So that is what has helped change people's opinions of this government.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, to a certain extent, these elections, I know we're going to be talking about them in the preview, but they seem to have come at just the right time for Boris Johnson, because if they'd have been a few months earlier, when we were in quite a big national lockdown, people might have thought very differently. And if they'd come a few months later when we're starting to reopen and people are feeling the real economic effects of the government schemes dropping away, again, it might be a very different perspective. Um, but turning back to the Conservative Party more broadly, in, in recent weeks, the government have lost yesterday their race advisor Samuel Kasumu, and a few weeks ago, Luke Graham, who was the advisor test with preventing Scottish independence. Do you think these changes in Downing Street indicate anything about policy problems they're having? And do they have an advisor problem?
1: Well, if you want to go back, and re- rewind the clock a little bit. Don't forget Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings who also left the Precisely. government.
0: Yeah, we talk, we, they just left when we were talking about it back in December.
1: Um, I think Luke Graham's point is a little bit different from the rest. Luke Graham is a former Conservative MP for Oakhill and South Persia. And I think what the government realised is that they needed a bigger heavy rate to run the union unit, particularly since the fact that devolution or certainly the threat of Scottish independence is significantly higher than when Luke Graham joined the union unit at the start of the last election when he lost his seat. So I think in his case, it's the fact that they needed a bigger heavy rate to run the department, whereas the rest of them, Sammy Kusumu, Dominic Cummings, Lee K both fell out with the government over policy, and that's slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel Kusumo left because of the rather controversial race report that was released earlier this week. I think the advisor problem is that there are few of them that seemed to have enormous sway over the prime minister. Certainly, Maruni Mirza, who was a deputy mayor under Boris Johnson, has a lot of um, sway within Uh, his government. And that's evidenced by the fact that her views very much got represented, you could argue, in the race report. So potentially, the fact that he realized that, you know, he was not the player or the as influential as a vice as compared to her, pushed her over the edge. And that is something in common with what the Dominic Cummings and Lee Keynes of the world, because they were themselves losing influence within the party, as evidenced by the rise of Carrie Simmons, and Alice uh, Strangton of the world. Actually, one more point as well. Don't forget that one of the big things in politics over the last 20 years has been the growth of number Mm -hmm. 10. So the very fact is that the number of advisors themselves are significantly more compared to each prime minister that has preceded it. So therefore, if you have more advisors, the chances of somebody resigning is also higher. So that's just a small point, but I think it's a really important point as well. Do you think that the Conservatives are heading towards a post-local election reshuffle? Or do you think they might want to give ministers a little bit longer to bed in as such, given that the last reshuffle was only in February of last year?
0: My initial thought is that a reshuffle was on the way, because I think there are certain people, as you said, in the government who are not performing well and who are actually proving a liability in terms of public perception of the government. The only thing that I think might prevent it happening is just the optics of a reshuffle taking place at the moment. Because how do you justify moving the health secretary when we're basically in the middle of the vaccine rollout? Even, even though your justification might be, oh, well, health policy could have been better, I don't think the public will appreciate a change of management for, for casual observers of politics a change of management of the health department, for example, in the middle of a pandemic. I'm, I just don't know how the optics of that will fly, but I, I might be being very naive here.
1: Certainly, and I think the argument does have legs in itself. And like you said, we'll be looking at developments. It, they are to take place. I think a June reshuffle is probably the, the time to do so. And if it doesn't happen uh, over, certainly, the long commons recess over summer, and if that doesn't happen, you're very looking much in next year, I feel. Mm-hmm, I agree. And then the other thing is that we're coming up to Sam is that in two days' time, Keir Starmer will celebrate one year as leader of the Labour Party. He certainly started off with a bang, but Sam, do you think the momentum has certainly faded given the fact that Boris Johnson has re-established a small but consistent lead in the polls?
0: Well, firstly, I am shocked that it's been one year that has been the fastest year ever um, but we all know why so with regards to momentum I think firstly I think momentum has stalled a bit but to a certain extent I'm not exactly sure that it's his fault as leader of the Labour Party because I think over the past year the trajectory of politics has been controlled by number one the pandemic and number two the performance of the government so I think when you're the opposition in a crisis as long term and as severe as this, there's only so much you can do to, to change your own fate, because quite often you're going to be just agreeing with government policy. And even when you are disagreeing with it in a crisis as unprecedented as this, you only have so many avenues through which you can criticise them. Um, that said, I think there are mistakes that have been made by the Labour Party, certainly in trying to promote Keir Starmer as leader and trying to get his charismatic side out there a bit more and his public message carrier side out there a bit more. I think mistakes have been made but I think it's been unfortunate for the Labour Party that your performance basically to a a large extent is out of your hands. Can you tell the
1: listeners what mistakes in your opinion have been made by Keir Starmer and his team?
0: Broadly I think that they should have Pierre Starmer out there more as just a charismatic man of the people throughout COVID times just trying to raise public spirits as, as one thing um, because I think every time we've seen him come out and do a message it's been very serious very profound and I think to a certain extent people need that because they need to see a leader but I think they've been putting too much focus on trying to be serious over trying to be charismatic and compassionate, because I think in the world of politics at the moment, that is also quite important. And Boris Johnson, for all his mistakes, he's actually quite good at that. Um, the, but then more specifically, I think they've also been trying to find very specific areas of government policy in COVID to criticise, and in doing so have found really niche areas. The vaccinating teachers was a classic example of this they've picked a very specific policy area that not everyone really agrees with in the grand scheme of things is actually quite hard to implement anyway and the government have been able to just bat it away like an annoying little fly and so when you're trying to choose your government in waiting and when there is appetite for criticism of government policy when you're picking very specific things like that people don't really get on board with it so I think he's been doing a good job at trying to restore the seriousness and legitimacy of the Labour Party and he deserves a lot of credit for doing that because it was a long way to come. We had double-digit leads for the Conservative Party in polls throughout the early state of 2020 and now it's down to mid-single digits, sometimes low single digits, so he deserves credit for that. But I think there are things he could be doing to get them just that little bit further. But how much of it is more the fact that
1: the reason why the polls have closed is largely because Lib Dem voters have now moved to the Labour Party. And a lot Mm -hmm. of those voters could have been natural Labour voters but were just put off by Jeremy Corbyn, being leader of the Labour Party. So naturally, a non-Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party would have attracted those votes. So in other words, are those just the low-hanging fruit? Because I think Keir Starmer's problem is the fact the Conservative vote, even and his nadir, was still polling around 40%, which is a very high ceiling to have. And unless you can get people to swing from the Conservative Party directly to the Labour Party, Keir Starmer might find it difficult to you know, move mm-hmm. Labour beyond just Conservative largest party in a hung parliament situation. And I'm not sure whether he's, he has moved Labour beyond that, really.
0: No. And I mean, it's important to recognise, I think, that the low-hanging fruit was also important to get back because in the latter days of Jeremy Corbyn, they were even failing to get low-hanging fruit. So being able to do that is a step in the right direction. Um, But if we look at Keir Starmer's approval ratings, back in May 2020, one of the first approval ratings done by YouGov of him, he was at plus 22 with 44% who didn't know who he was. So he's got the don't knows down to 23%, but his approval rating is now at negative 13. So that's what needs to change. I think people are not sure how they feel about Keir Starmer as a person. And I think trying to promote his lighter side would go a long way in restoring that because I think people just view him as a little bit too serious and boring. And whilst You need seriousness, and the Labour Party, to a large extent, was lacking in that for five years. It's only so much because you need someone who inspires people to want to vote for them. But as I said, I do think the poll problem, at the moment at least, with no election on the horizon is very much dictated by, with no national election on the horizon, I should say, is very much dictated by government performance, not opposition performance.
1: It's really interesting you brought up Keir Starmer's approval rating because I think the big determinant of this will be how the Red Wall feels towards Keir Starmer because the Red Wall seats Mm -hmm. will be determining whether the Conservatives have a majority at the next election. Mm -hmm. And I know that JL Partners recently did a focus group of voters within the Red Wall and they noted that Keir Starmer's leadership has, like the national polls, gone from plus positive to negative, plus seven to minus three, and Boris Johnson has gone from minus two to plus seven. But nevertheless, Labour will, will pick up some seats, um, ex wall seat, largely due to the fact that Lib Dems are returning to the party, but Labour would only gain 18 seats, and even if they take a few seats off the Conservatives in the South, it will still leave the Conservatives quite, quite a comfortable majority at the next election. With the caveat, of course, this is we are a long way away to the next election, and the reason why in which Keir Starmer's approval rating has turned negative is a lot of people say that he is they are unclear with what he stands for, and they do not know much about him or they do not like this flip floppiness or this idea that the mm-hmm. conservatives have been promoting in their messaging that you know he's Captain Hindsight as such, in the sense that he sits on the fence and only gets to a view once. Opinion polls have been conducted, and what I find very interesting is that the conservative message has cut through in these areas, and I think the Conservative Party, for a while, has been a lot better at messaging than the Labour Party has ever done. So to me, this is very interesting. That this unclear what it stands for, it suggests to me that the Conservative attack has, has had some bite on Labour in these
0: in these areas that could decide um, whether the Conservatives have a majority or not. As I said at the start I think another problem is that they're very much in a transitional phase still. Keir Starmer is trying to move away from what became quite entrenched in the Labour Party because Jeremy Corbyn's wing had control of the party for the best part of 5 years. So it was it's a long thing to undo and and not only were they in charge of the party for 5 years they went in front of the UK population in two national elections which has a lot of Impact on how the, the country views that party. So I think Keir Starmer's not performing particularly well, but at the same time, he has an, an enormous mountain to climb.
1: Certainly. Do you think, therefore, that the left are just waiting to pounce after, let's say, a poor set of local election results um, in May? And therefore could become more vocal and try and cause Keir Starmer more problems in that case.
0: I'm not sure they have that power, to be completely honest.
1: But the media will talk about it and they would talk about divisions within the Labour Party, much as you know, they played endless conservative divisions, you know, through the Brexit years.
0: They will. And I think that's why um, there's been a lot of rumors recently that Keir Starmer is gearing up to have a minor reshuffle of his top team. Because I think they're gearing up, if there is a leftward response to whatever the performance ends up being, they at least have a, a, a much stronger team to go out there, not just him defending the record of the Labour Party, but everybody around him as well.
1: It's interesting you would talk about a possible shadow cabinet reshuffle, because that's the last thing I wanted to talk about before I move on and talk about our dear friends, Liberal Democrats. Um, There's been a lot of speculation surrounding the future of Annalise Dodds as Shadow Chancellor and with suggestions she could be either replaced by Lisa Nandy or Rachel Reeves, um, who are currently the Shadow Foreign Secretary or Shadow Minister for the Cabinet Office, both of whom could be argued have definitely a higher media profile and are pretty good media performances. Is Annalise Dodds the weakest link and as such, do you think that she could be replaced?
0: I think she is the weakest link in terms of media performance, which in the COVID-19 pandemic is vital, because if you're not being able to stand up in the commons and criticising government policy at every turn, and you're just having to go along with it, you need someone who can communicate well what the Labour Party's position on these things are. It's interesting you brought up those names as replacements, because I've actually been seeing rumours of... Keir Starmer approaching figures like Yvette Cooper and Hillary Benn to come back into the shadow cabinet because he thinks it's now time where they might accept that sort of profile. I'm, I'm not convinced that Yvette Cooper will move across, but I think Hillary Benn could be convinced. And I think getting communicators like that could serve Keir Starmer quite well.
1: I could see a scenario where he could replace Lisa Nandy, as shadow foreign secretary, suddenly a position he has had experience in as mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn, Shadow Foreign Secretary, and Indeed. Brexit Select Committee Chair would be, you know, that's dealing with Europe, um, yeah. U- relations with Europe, and Lisa Nandy could therefore be free to take over a Shadow Chancellor position. It would mean Annalise thoughts, I suspect, will more likely be shunted to another portfolio, but it would be portrayed in the media as a demotion, because after Shadow Chancellor, you know, that anything else is largely seen as a demotion in that sense. So potentially, I, I could see that happening. Livette Cooper is interesting. I actually think that... Would she really want to be chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee? Give up that gig to return to Shadow
0: Cabinet? You're not, you don't seem particularly convinced. I'm not convinced. Um, because I think if she were to move across to back into the sort of upper echelons of party management rather than um, commons management, it would probably either to be... Shadow Chancellor, which is, is potentially what's going to happen, I doubt it, or leader. So I think she will probably stay where she is for now, unless Keir Starmer makes a very attractive offer to her.
1: Well, we should certainly see. It would be really interesting for her to go up against Pretty Patel as Shadow Home Secretary. Quick question. A, do you think Annalise Dodds will be replaced, and who will be a replacement?
0: I think Annalise Dodds will be replaced. I don't know how soon. Um, and I think the most likely name for me is Rachel Reeves.
1: Interesting. And now onto to the th- notion of third party, our and sometimes forgotten Liberal Democrats, isn't it, Sam? It is, yes.
0: So the Liberal Democrats, currently led by Sir Ed Davey, have been in a difficult position for quite a number of years. And particularly at the moment in a post-Brexit world, it's very difficult to figure out what their contribution to the British party system is other than being the centrist slightly left-leaning option for people who live in the southeast and southwest who don't want to vote conservative what we have seen recently actually is interesting liberal takes on covid policies for example the liberal democrats were straight out of the gates opposing vaccine certification for reopening of venues in the UK which is interesting that they're less looking like the obvious left-leaning party and are now looking more like people who are promoting civil liberties, which is what the Liberal Democrats traditionally were representing anyway. So first question for you, Chern, before we move on a bit, is in the post-Brexit world, can the Liberal Democrats get traction again? And if so, what on? It's very interesting that they are much more... They are actually
1: being liberal and libertarian on COVID policy. Because don't forget, Sir Ed Davey was was um, often associated with the orange book win of the Liberal Democrats, which is a little bit more centre-centre-right rather than centre-centre-left like uh, Charles Kennedy as such. And I think this could potentially appeal to voters in the Southeast who potentially you know, are slightly concerned more about the economy. So I do think there is some method to their slight interesting takes on very liberal policy uh, areas here. But... Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, this seems to be very much a throwing your weight around and hoping something sticks approach to the Liberal Democrats. And I'm not sure opposing COVID vaccinations will be the one to gain traction again. I'm sorry, opposing COVID passports, not opposing COVID vaccines. But it certainly doesn't seem to have the same weight as opposing the Iraq war did, certainly in terms of the saliency that had compared to opposing a COVID passport at this stage, I would argue. But yeah, it does seem a throw your weight around, hope something sticks approach. So that suggests to me a little bit of a struggle for irrelevant, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because local elections have traditionally been quite a good time for the Liberal Democrats because they tend to perform quite well on local council levels. Even where I'm from in York, the Liberal Democrats currently lead the council and they're nowhere near that when it comes to the Westminster seats so it's interesting that they have quite local roots but maybe with the lack of a ground campaign this time they're left at some sort of a disadvantage relative to their performance back in 2017 because they don't have the party infrastructure and the national media profile that the Labour and the Conservatives have but it'll be certainly interesting to watch.
1: I think that's particularly key as well, because we saw why a lot of the SNP search in Scotland was because of Nicola Sturgeon's daily briefings Mm -hmm. and the confidence that it gave people. And certainly, if you can't campaign on the ground, it means you have to take to the airways and social media to compensate, really. And with the media focusing so much on what the government is doing in terms of COVID, largely not due to the significance of their announcements, it makes the third parties like the Lib Dems particularly difficult to break through. So your avenues are very much more limited to social media where potentially you're just living in the echo chamber of your own supporters Mm -hmm. rather than reaching out to that. I know, for example, the UK has some rules potentially allowing party political advertising closer to election time. But the reality is how many people are going to sit through a minute long, two minute long party ad, you know? Yeah. And more importantly, how many people are watching live television? That's very true as well. So... It is, it's going to be challenging for the Lib Dems, but they have sometimes outperformed people's expectations at local elections. As you say, you know, in York they are doing very well. And potentially that localism flavor could still carry through. But I acknowledge it will be difficult. But, you know, a lot of it, particularly maybe as an incumbent, they could be difficult to dislodge. But gaining new ground could prove very difficult.
0: So... Moving on to the other smaller parties to round it off. Indeed. And one of those from Labour's headaches
1: is the fact that the Greens have seen a slight increase in their poll rating, certainly since the election. Do you think, therefore, you agree with this theory that I have that the reason the Greens are rising is that in 2019, a lot of the left wing voters who might have voted Green voted Labour because of Jeremy Corbyn? And because he's not leading, a small fraction of them has gone to the Greens as such. Or is it more of a theory of the fact that, you know, the environment is becoming increasingly important in the run-up to COP26 and environmentalism is obviously, you know, if you care a lot about the environment, the Greens is the political party to go to. Or is it a combination of both factors, in your opinion, fueling the rise of the Greens?
0: I think it's a combination of both factors. I think there's also a lingering um, Brexit effect going on here because the Greens were very um, famously pro-second referendum going into the last election and were left-wing, so they became quite a popular option. And I think environmentalism is certainly a factor here as well. But it's also important to, to qualify what we call the rise of the Greens they're another party, actually, who tend to do reasonably well in local elections. So it'll be interesting to watch. And when we preview the England local elections, when we talk about the Greens a bit differently. But for as long as I can remember in opinion polls since the great fragmentation of 2015 in the build up to that election, the Greens have been polling around four or five percent. They have a ceiling of maybe six occasionally. So it's not this gradual rise going on over a number of years the five percent floor is where they have been really for the last six years in uk politics with flare-ups and losses as people um, solidify around the main two parties so whilst i do think there has been a growth in support for environmentalism that has potentially translated into a minor boost for the greens profile i think their actual performance has not changed too significantly at all But nevertheless, this is a first-past-the-poll system. And
1: any votes taken away from Labour could prove problematic Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, them finishing first in a contest, isn't it? And fracturing the vote is one of the worst things that happen to a big party, isn't it? And do you think at this stage is that, you know, will they suffer a classic squeeze as the campaign, short sort of campaign goes on? where a bit like, you know, we saw the, the consolidation of the vote from the moment the 2019 election campaign was announced to when the results actually took place in mm-hmm. December. There was consolidation between, behind the Conservatives and to a lesser extent, the Labour Party. Do you think in the lead-up to Super Thursday, there could be that same consolidation which could halve the Greens as
0: such? I think so, because I think a bit like we talked about with the Lib Dems, they're a very locally orientated party. So if they can't get out on the ground and launch their campaign, I think that a big part of their performance in local elections is being able to be visible and convince people to vote green. And in COVID-19, it's really hard to do that. So I think it might be we talked about the elections coming at the right time for the Conservatives. I think they're coming at the wrong time for small parties like the Greens, who, without COVID, might be gaining a bit of traction at the moment. Interesting. And the other small party I'd like to quickly
1: talk about is the Reform Party, which was previously led by Nigel Farage, but will now be led by Richard Tice, who was the chairman of the party. Now, the last time Nigel Farage left the leadership of his party it didn't prove too successful for the UKIP, United Kingdom Independence Party, which has virtually disappeared since then. Um, so therefore, will history repeat itself this time round with reform party, in your opinion?
0: I think so, I think so, and I, I for two reasons. One, I think a party without Nigel Farage has a certain ceiling to it. And I think Richard Tice comes across a lot more mainstream and political than Nigel Farage does. So I don't think you get the same sort of populist buzz around a figure like Richard Tice. Secondly, I think Brexit was such a powerful issue for what previously was known as the Brexit Party and is now the Reform Party. And without it, it's very difficult to figure out what their, what their actual policy is. Because I think in the UK, there's broad consensus on COVID. Not to a point where you can say everybody agrees, but there's also, I don't think there's much to capitalise on with regards to being anti the COVID response or anti-lockdown measures at all. So I think it's difficult for them policy-wise as well as leadership-wise.
1: Interesting. And the final thing about uh, the Reform Party is that we saw in 2017, the moment UKIP was uh, very much weighing in appeal, we saw particularly in the North that voters disproportionately went back to the party in which it largely took votes from, which in 2015 was the Labour Party. We had the Hartlepool by-election coming out and Reformed it particularly well in the Hartlepool by election. In fact, Richard Tice was the candidate then and got over 25% of the vote. And I think it's telling that he is not standing in the Hartlepool by election as a measure of the party's confidence heading into it. Do you think, therefore, that a lot of the reform party's vote will go, like in 2017, go back to their more natural home of the Labour Party? Or will the Conservatives? given the fact they actually got Brexit done, as their 2019 slogan said they would, meant that these voters would go to the Conservative Party, thus making the Hartlepool by-election much more interesting.
0: I think the Hartlepool by-election is going to be fascinating because it was one that Labour did hang on to, but there's been one opinion poll conducted of it where Labour had a three-point lead. So I think this is going to be a real indication of whether the Red Wall is going to come back to the Labour Party anytime soon. And I don't think Reform UK will play a large role in that question at all, because they're polling at max 2% at the moment. Um, Maybe they'll have a bit of a resurgence, but I think there's, there's a lot more going on in the Red Wall that doesn't really involve any party that was formerly led by Nigel Farage.
1: I think the Reform Party had a base somewhat in the past, whereby a lot of Labour voters who were disillusioned with Labour but just couldn't stand putting the X on the Conservative box when to vote Reform Party. Do you think that that still exists, that stigma still exists, and that could be a potential base of support for the Reform Party?
0: Potentially, potentially, but I think... They don't necessarily have the infrastructure or profile to capitalise on that, is my concern for them.
1: And suddenly this is a personality-based party rather than a policy-driven party.
0: It is, and I don't think Richard Tice is the same personality as Nigel Farage was, and that will be the Reform UK's downfall, I think.
1: Anyway, we've long predicted the fall of these parties. So uh, you're next on the line on that one, Sam. Lastly, I think on our final question, let's talk big picture again as a final question to you, Sam. Is who do you think has the most to lose, or gain in
0: this election
1: cycle that's
0: happening in about a month's time? I think absolutely the Labour Party has the most to lose because these elections last took place at one of their lowest ebbs. And if they can't gain on it, that would be catastrophic for Keir Starmer's Labour Party. And it's a perfect opportunity to build his profile. The Lib Dems have nothing left to lose, and nor does the Greens, really. So anything's a gain here. Um, I don't think the Conservatives necessarily have much to gain or lose, to be honest, because either way they can spin it well. But for sure, the Labour Party is going to be the biggest party to watch in this cycle, I think.
1: And I think what's particularly pertinent for the Labour Party is that the path to majority government lies through Scotland. And if they can't show any pulse of life in Scotland, I think that could be particularly problematic for Keir Starmer's chances. And it looks like in Wales Mm -hmm. that its time factor having been in power since 1999 is fast catching up on them. And therefore, losing more ground in Wales could potentially be a very bad thing for Labour. But the, you know, there's a lot more to talk about. We've just barely scratched the surface of British politics. And we will be diving in the next few podcasts um, about various ongoing campaigns happening in various parts of the UK. And we will obviously bring you the fallout of the results when it happens as well. So buckle up and join us for the wow, wow, wide ahead on the way to Super Thursday. But that is it for the latest episode about it to talk about. Join us again next week when we'll be talking about the politics of Northern Ireland, the one area of the UK actually not going to the polls in a month's time. And as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han and until next time, we will speak to you soon.